Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. As we gear up for award season, there's no better time to join us. By becoming a Vanity Fair subscriber, you'll gain exclusive access to our in-depth coverage of film, television, and the best of Hollywood. And that's just the beginning. Vanity Fair takes you inside the worlds of entertainment, culture, politics, and scandal, bringing you iconic images, era-defining stories, and much more. Get 15% off a year of digital access to Vanity Fair by visiting VanityFair.com and using promo code POD15 at checkout. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a full year of insights and exclusive digital access. Subscribe now. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Ritchie, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with a full house today. We've got our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hello, Katie. Our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. Our digital director, Mike Hogan. Hello. And joining us to talk about two of the most fascinating movies of the fall, we've got our Hollywood editor, Hillary Busis. Hi. Welcome back, Hillary. You were the only person I thought who could really properly weigh in on Bohemian Rhapsody, which is out next week. The Rami Malek starring Freddie Mercury biopic. So we brought you in to talk about that as well as Suspiria, which is out this week. And then from there, we're going to talk about some of the uh, Oscar races that have us fascinated uh, as everything continues to shift throughout award season. Um, but I think we're going to start with Suspiria because it's out this week from Amazon. I think it's opening in two theaters, which seems to be Amazon's strategy. They roll things out incredibly slowly. Uh, uh, and it has worked well for them in the past. Um, I have not seen Suspiria. I've not seen the original Suspiria, so maybe I should just like sit in a corner for the rest of this conversation. <laughs> Face the wall, Katie. I know. I sit in my shame. Um, so, Hillary, what what is the deal with Suspiria? It, it seems fascinating, even if like if you're me and you've seen the ads, you maybe totally don't understand it. I've seen the movie and I don't totally understand it. So that just might be kind of what Suspiria does and is. Um, actually, I feel like Richard might be best to talk about it because Richard reviewed it and loved it. Uh, like you gave it pretty much a glowing rave. Yeah. I mean, but I think the thing about it is that it's really sort of what you put on the movie, you know, like, like I, you could write any review and it could be about anything of that with that movie, <laughs> like Emily Oshita from New York Magazine, a critic I really love. After I filed my review, I finally read hers from Venice and I was like, oh, we saw completely different movies and yet we both loved it. So it's just kind of a funny thing. And I think also, Katie, in terms of your shame, <laughs> it's funny that all of a sudden we all are supposed to have seen this 41 year old Italian horror movie. Like it's like that's a real like niche kind of thing. So I don't think anyone should feel guilty for not being familiar with Dario Argento's original. Thank you, Richard. I don't think anyone should feel guilty, but I don't think it's like quite as niche as you just painted it. Like it's it's if you're into horror, which I'm not, but if you are into horror, that is like a staple, like a like a cult classic. It's sort of become this thing. I don't feel bad. I've never seen it either. I actually plan to watch it this week. I don't feel bad for not having seen it. I don't think anyone should. And I talked to a bunch of like horror aficionados about it, and they were all like, oh, I mean, 
if you see the new Suspiria and then you watch the old Suspiria, you'll be like, well, that movie didn't have much to say. Like, actually, the way my friend put it was the old Suspiria didn't have much on its mind. Whereas this new Suspiria, as Richard alluded to, like, has so much to say that you could talk to a million different film critics and they'll have a different interpretation of it. Yeah, I think the crucial thing about the, the new version versus the old is that, I mean, both of them take place in Berlin in the late 70s, but... Luca Guadagnino, who directed the movie, really does a lot with that time and place um, and really investigates it in terms of its spot in history and what was going on, you know, 30 plus years after World War II. And and I think that that adds a really interesting dimension to the movie where the original is much more just like spooky, you know, murder, like get away from the way. Is anybody like talking about like like Nazi guilt or like survivor's guilt or any, is any of that on the surface in the original movie, which I also haven't seen? Not that I remember, it's been yeah. a while, but I think that from what I could tell from from this version, at least in my memory of the old version, like it, it, yeah, this is much more explicit about all that stuff. Um, and and possibly to the detriment of a sort of, I mean, in a way, like feminist narrative with the movie, where where over the course of the film, a male character kind of moves to the center, though that male character is played by Tilda Swinton. Spoiler alert! <laughs> Sorry. I feel like that's known, right? No, it's <laughs> at this point, uh, they've given up the ghost. It does point out one of the cool things, like I, uh, you know, I've been fascinated by the Tilda casting thing, and that basically there are no significant male parts in the movie, and she plays the only significant male character. That is, it's an interesting twist. I don't know. The only other male figures are these like policemen who get completely humiliated and debased. And I think that's it literally. Um, and so it's interesting because I, I did talk to the screenwriter at fantastic fest and he was like, at that point they weren't being explicit about who Tilda was playing, but he was like, um, we wanted to have no male point of view in this film. And so despite the fact that they have a male figure at the center and a male uh, director for their and, and a male director and a male screenwriter. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> they, um, like let's they wanted... not give them their feminist trophy. <laughs> perhaps. A- abs- absolutely. They get like bronze at least. Um, but <laughs> the, um, they put Tilda in that role so as to like not have a, like other than theirs a strong male point of view um but also i think his point was he they wanted a figure who was definitely an outsider of this world and so since this world is so feminine um you know they wanted that male figure in there to feel completely outside of it um and i guess the, the last thing i'll say about this is like the the original film i know it's like a mystery of like is are these witches like are are these witches or are they not? This movie's like, hey, guess what? From the top, they're witches. Why is that interesting? You know what I mean? And I think that's a much more, uh, yeah, interesting like uh, take on the whole thing. Yeah, that's true. There isn't a mystery element, really. Um, it's really just you, the, any suspense is just you waiting for kind of all hell to break loose, which it does in spectacular fashion, obviously, at the end of the movie. Yeah, I think the question is, I mean, like you said, Katie, the rollout is going to be slow and deliberate and... But, you know, the comparison that I made in my review and that others have made is to Mother, which was a movie last fall that was similarly weird and alienating kind of kind of horror from a, a sort of auteur director. Artie. Um, Artie. Yeah, very, you know, and, and that movie was divisive. I, Hillary, I think you really liked that movie where I, I loved the opposite. It. Yeah. yeah. So so I think that it'll be interesting to see where Suspiria kind of falls on that spectrum. It's being released later in the year than Mother was. But it's also competing with big things like Halloween, which made near $80 million last weekend, you know. So I, I wonder how this movie will sort of play out in the discourse. I, I, I don't know. Does it 
play at like a horror movie that you would go to see on Halloween if you were like a bunch of high school kids? If you're a very pretentious high school kid. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. All right. But I think it's less alienating the mother, right? Like, I think that there's more to grab onto there than there was with mother. Like, it, sound design alone is less alienating than mother. So if you're if you're like a Hamilton kid, you go see Suspiria for yeah. Halloween. You loved you love Tilda. You want to see Tilda right, do three yeah. things at once? Why not go see? You want to learn how to pronounce Luca Guan? <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you're a 17 year old boy and you love doing theater and you've never had a girlfriend, <laughs> right? <laughs> if you're Lucas Hedges in Lady Bird, then this is your favorite right. movie. But actually, <laughs> let's be frank. I'm sure there are some of those wonderful people in our audience. So should they bring a date or not? That's that's the real important question. Well, I mean, it could be an interesting litmus test for a, new, a fledgling relationship. Like, okay, if you. Love it and they hate it is that a sort of a sign of something uh no. i will say that there is less like <laughs> weird sexuality than i thought there would be in yeah. the movie it's a pretty unsexual yeah. movie in in a way um and i think that that's part and parcel with the the sort of mono gender kind of like approach to to the to the film um uh, i was kind of expecting it to be like the favorite honestly and there's like none of that yeah yeah there's, there's like, no subtext there's no text text no. No, there's one line that yeah. sort of references it, but that but sex, but that's kind of it. So yeah, I, I don't know that it's like necessarily the uh, the date night movie for for Halloween, but I think it could be the, you know, if you want to kind of feel smarter than your friends and you know, uh, and because that's the thing, a movie like this that's so abstract in its kind of intention, you can graft anything onto it. You can be a genius in in a million ways, like because you can be like, no, it's actually about this or it's about this and. The funny thing is, you're not really wrong. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that's perfect. There are, you, are you... a couple of really gory moments, which I just want to like yeah, point there's, out. There's one sequence in particular, that like just about made... halfway through the film, that I like, was like clutching my face. Yeah. It was horrible. It's pretty brutal. So just be, you know, buyer beware about that. But you can just cover your eyes. You yeah. know, cover your date's eyes. And you have to cover your ears because there's a lot of bones cracking. <laughs> oh. Just leave the theater. <laughs> Go get a popcorn. Oh boy. <laughs> It's just that one, though. Like, someone asked me if it was gory, and I wouldn't call it gory except for that one scene, which except is for the, bone the most gory scene. thing I've ever seen. Yes, which will live in my nightmares forever. So the next obvious question, I think, about which audiences will receive it, is there a reason to keep this in the Oscar conversation, or is it going to be like Mother, where it's fascinating and people like talking about it, but uh, the awards campaign never comes together? I think its biggest play in that world is that it has a celebrity composer for its score in Tom York from Radiohead. And the score is really evocative and interesting and, um, you know, in much the same way that like Trent Reznor has been doing interesting film scores or Johnny Greenwood from also from Radiohead um, has been doing a lot of great film scores uh, for the past like decade or so. So I think that could get in there. I mean, it looks great. There are some technical things, but I think that cinematography. Yeah, I think that that's about there. But like it also has a lot, a lot of competition. So maybe score with, again, a big name that could be its big big chance if we were in the days when there was an oscar for choreography it would have that all sewn up yeah for sure did there used to be an oscar for choreography did there maybe i made that up i thought that maybe in there the should, days when there, there should were, be when there were musicals like when there were enough musicals i think that, that was maybe in the conversation maybe i'm thinking of the globes <laughs> well the, glo- the, glo- we the globes will always uh, be able to make their own rules um so we so we can't hold out hope for like a tilda dark horse campaign or anything like that I mean, maybe she's playing three roles, so like maybe in supporting, I don't know. That third role is a spoiler, Joanna. <laughs> I don't consider it a spoiler. It's like it's out there. You're like there, there. Oh, there she is again. Okay, hi Tilda again. It's listed on her IMDb, like on the on the movies IMDb cast list, all of the roles that Tilda Swinton oh, okay. is playing. So if you don't want to know anything more, then don't read that. Also, if you've got Tilda, you may as well use her again. 
Well, exactly. Yeah. Um, some, someone on Twitter uh, said that the headline of the review, which mentions witches, which I'd asked you, Hillary, before we published, they said it was a spoiler. And I was like, again, this movie's been out for, I mean, for 40 years. I mean, there's some <laughs> version of it. Like, we all know it's about witches. Come on. Uh... Well, talking about another movie that we all know the ending to, although I don't actually have no idea how the movie handles this particular ending, uh, Bohemian Rhapsody, the Freddie Mercury biopic that uh, has been mired in controversy, I guess not since it began, but at least since its director, Brian Singer, was fired halfway through production. Um, it's out next week. Uh, Hillary, I believe you're the only one of us who's seen it. So we brought you in as our as our sage guide to the world of Freddie Mercury and Bohemian Rhapsody. Uh, from what I can tell, you're kind of fascinated by this movie, even if you don't like it at all. Yeah, it's a bizarre movie in every way. It's like Walk Hard Played Straight, which is <laughs> nuts. <laughs> like, it's a biopic about a musician made as though there have not been 50 million other biopics about musicians that are all exactly the same. Like, it hits every single cliched note. And it's rated PG-13, which is crazy because it's a movie about a rock band in the 70s and 80s, and there is no drug use or nudity or swearing. Um so the movie uh, is executive produced by two surviving members of the band, Brian May and Roger Taylor, um, and it seems as though they kind of dictated what material would be permitted to be included and what wouldn't. I mean, I guess as is usually the case when, you know, real people are involved in a movie about them. Um, but because of that, I think that it has this slant that's really weird. It's like kind of selling itself as a, Fre- a Freddie Mercury biopic, but the movie is very concerned with making sure every member of Queen like gets credit for the things that they did. Like, there is this scene where Freddie is complaining about something and he's like, and I didn't even write that song. Like, you did the riff, right? like Roger, and like the drum was all you, Brian. And it's just like <laughs> so awkward. And like, uh, and so much of the movie also is like, uh, to go back to Walk Hard, um, you know that part in Walk Hard where he's like, meeting the Beatles and it's like Paul Rudd and Jason Schwartzman and like somebody is like what do you think George Harrison of the Beatles like that's the whole movie (laughs) like it's just very awkwardly shoehorning in like hey here's a thing that you know like let's mention it so that you can feel smart and we're foreshadowing like the moment where we play it on the stage does Um, anyone play uh, is anyone good at playing like 70s rock stars like is there a good Bowie or Elton John or something there there isn't there isn't a Bowie which I was really disappointed by they don't have um, they don't (laughs) have an under pressure surviving members of Queen are just like let's pretend Bowie never existed. <laughs> kind of. Oh man, that you reminds me. Overshadowed us. My very fam- My very favorite thing that happens in the movie is so the whole thing is kind of uh, built around Queen's big Live Aid performance in 1985, which was. I didn't really appreciate before I saw it kind of how big of a deal in music history this is, especially if you're British and you care about rock. Like, this was the biggest concert ever in the world, and Queen's performance was amazing, and they hadn't performed live in a while, and it was big and triumphant. And um, so they're leading up to that, and the band is talking about, like, all of the other bands that are supposed to play at Live Aid, and they're like, everybody's going to be there. Like, Paul McCartney, Mick Jagger, uh, U2, Bob Dylan... Ario Speedwagon. <laughs> yes. Ario Speedwagon was also a producer on the film. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm fascinated by this PG 13 thing. Do you think they were just like, it should be a family movie? You know, yeah, obviously, like obviously, Queen is a family band, right? Yeah, they've probably got kids and grandkids now, and they're like, Oh, I need them to see it, yeah. Well, and that actually it brings up another really weird and bad thing about this movie is that it kind of paints all of the members of Queen except for Freddie Mercury as these like straight-laced family men like there's there's a moment where like sad Freddie Mercury uh who is like, you know, not out publicly but everybody in his life knows that he's gay um and he's he's like been like kind of uh 
there's this predatory manager who has kind of seduced him into this like hedonistic lifestyle. Um, and Freddie is getting sad and he like looks around at his bandmates and he's like, you all have wives and families. What do I have? Which is like, whoa. Oh, yeah. Cool. So like there's, there's, there's this weird homophobic strain in it. Like it kind of it doesn't mean maybe to blame like him being gay for like his downfall and like getting AIDS. But it kind of seems like it does. Like it very much associates like being gay with this this like you know partying lifestyle and like no other other members of the band are ever like doing drugs or cheating on their wives but freddie mercury is well it's interesting because i feel like some of queen's music like we are the champions or we will rock you or whatever like that that stuff that's been so you know uh, uh, um taken in welcomely by 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 like straight men who want to be at sports jock things, rock. jock rock kind of thing and and yet at root of it is this flamboyant queer man who like you know and i so i think that there's been an effort over the years to sort of push that narrative out of queen's music or some of it anyway and it feels like that movie is then kind of carrying water for that mission which is a weird thing considering and albeit one with a very problematic personal life from all we understand was directed by a gay man so for the most most of the production you know so it's just weird that like that I think that kind of what you're alluding to, Hillary, is it feels like was this movie made in like 1992? Like it feels yeah. very retrograde. Yeah, there's this weird tension. Um, and it also it also uh, as I guess any like fact based movie would in order to create dramatic tension and whatever. I mean, it does it changes the facts a lot. Um, like most egregiously, I think it has Freddie Mercury realizing that he, like getting diagnosed with AIDS, then like getting back together with the band that he has left because he wanted to have this solo career, like kind of pushed by this predatory manager guy. And then he gets diagnosed and kind of sees the error of his ways and goes back to his friends and they like have this triumphant concert. But in real life, A, Queen never broke up, at least publicly. Uh, he was not, Freddie Mercury was not the first person in the band to make a solo album or try to do a solo career. He was preceded by at least two other band members. And he wasn't diagnosed with AIDS until 1987. And Live Aid was in 1985. So like, it's really like kind of creating this narrative in order to like justify itself when like there's a real story that would have been as interesting, if not more interesting, if they had actually done that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it, it makes me curious. Um, well, I'm curious about two things. First is like, will the Elton John movie suffer the same thing, Rocket Man, which is like bizarrely like a May release. And is directed by the guy who took over for Bohemian Rhapsody, right? Yes. Oh, right. Yeah. But yeah. Elton's alive. So he can be like, no, this is a story about how great I am, <laughs> not how great Bernie right. Talbot. I have control over this. But my other question for you, Hillary, is... So I've heard similar things from other other people about the film, but a lot of those same people are saying, but Rami Malek's really good. So do you think he's good enough to kind of transcend a pretty bad rote biopic? You know, I'm not really sure. I think I think a lot of people like Rami Malek and want to not just completely tear the movie apart. Um, I think that he does what he can. He is saddled with this ridiculous set of fake teeth um, that is... It's just very distracting and like affects the way that he speaks. Um, he doesn't do his own singing most of the time. They, there, I think that they claim that you can that his voice is like in the mix in some of the songs, but like listening to them as somebody who has listened to a fair amount of Queen, like the songs in the movie sound basically exactly like the real Queen tracks. Like I'm not really sure how much singing was involved. And if you're an actor playing a singer, I think that you get more credit if you sing or rather than just lip syncing. Um, so yeah, he's good. Like, I don't know if he's good enough to transcend everything around him. Yeah, 
Uh, I mean, he has goodwill towards him, but maybe it's not quite exactly. Enough. And the fact that it's not competing as a as a musical at the Golden Globes, which felt really obvious, like a way for him to get in for best actor in a musical or comedy, um, like that seemed to kind of shoot the awards chances it had in the foot. Although the Hollywood Foreign Press ultimately makes that decision. Oh, do you they? Know, like a, like a st- yeah, a studio can like heavily say what their preference is. Like with Star is Born is going drama too. But like I, ultimately it's up to the HFPA. So then maybe they'll decide at the last, you know. Yeah, if they want awards, then it is crazy for them to, to even, submit this movie as a drama. Yeah. I mean, if Val Kilmer didn't win the Oscar for The Doors, I don't know, you know, what <laughs> people expect. Like this relitigation. What do you think, Jim Morrison of The Doors? <laughs> Hillary's reaction justifies everything that like I think a lot of us have been feeling for a long time which is like this has felt like a cursed project since the beginning because like we had many actors cycle through many directors cycle through Sasha Baron Cohen Ben Wishaw like all this up like I feel like I can track my time at Vanity Fair by like trade news stories I wrote about Bohemian Rhapsody um but my favorite quote from Sasha Baron Cohen when he was like off the project and just like throwing all kinds of salt on the project uh, afterwards is he said uh, that the band uh, thought that the movie, like Freddie Mercury should die midway through the movie and the back half of the movie should be about how the band triumphed like without him. (laughs) And he was like, I should have listened to the warning signs then is what Sasha Baron Cohen said. So it's like, it, it just like, yes, that's, that's essentially like, you know, Freddie Mercury doesn't die midway through, but this is a, a movie about how great the rest of Queen is, which is just um, not as advertised, you know? So Yeah, totally. Um, and you actually reminded me, Joanna, of another amazing, ridiculous thing about the movie, which is Mike Myers appears. Uh, obvi- Mike Myers is like an in-joke that his casting, because Wayne's World kind of brought Queen and specifically Bohemian Rhapsody back into, like, pop culture um, in the 90s. And... So Mike Myers appears as a record executive uh, who hates Bohemian Rhapsody, the song, like doesn't want to release it, thinks that it's garbage. It's like nobody will ever be like headbanging to this on the radio. No, just, like, man. Really, oh, yeah. It is so cringeworthy. Um, so Bohemian Rhapsody comes out anyway um, and it's, you know, a monster hit, whatever. But as like the band is playing it on the stage, the movie has this like, like succession of like headlines from like reviews of Bohemian Rhapsody that like flash across the screen. Is, is it spinning newspapers? It's basically <laughs> that, but it's all like like this song is garbage, Rolling Stone, like loud and pretentious, the New York Times, like just them taking this like really obnoxious victory lap in a really like Oh, God, it's so bad, you guys. This movie is so bad. Well, what the world needs in 2018 and what, in fact, people are demanding is a Wayne's World joke. (laughs) (laughs) God, and then I'm going to spoil the end of the movie. Um, And then so the last 15 or 20 minutes is just basically a shot for shot recreation of Queen at Live Aid. Like they do almost the entire set that the band played at Live Aid, um, which is crazy because that video exists. You can just watch it if you want to see that. You don't have to pay $19 to see it in a movie theater. Um, so they sing We Are the Champions and on the line, No Time for Losers. It flashes back to Mike Myers. <laughs> still still sitting in his office lamenting how he's the man who let Queen get away. He's the loser. Did you, did he's you get the loser. that? Yeah. It, it's basically Merry Christmas to everyone, including the haters and losers. <laughs> wow. <laughs> right. Oh, man. Wow. Yeah, there's something, there's something Trumpy. Yeah. For well, sure. and I think what the world is demanding in 2018 
is just a giant expensive like justification for a bunch of rich old white guys who used to be on top of the world in the 80s. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah they yeah, have they have yeah. this whole thing about how like Queen is a band of misfits like making music of, for misfits and it's oh my god, shut up you guys. Uh, do we do we want to talk about the Brian Singer of this? He's the director. He's the credited director on this. He has been hired for more projects despite some, you know, years worth of allegations of misconduct against him. Uh, I don't want to like say anything that's going to get us legally in trouble, but it just it's another added wrinkle that makes this movie seem so weird that it's partly directed by Brian Singer. Yeah, and you can kind of tell that at least for a significant amount of filming, there was somebody else at the helm. It's like it's choppy. It's uh, it's kind of awkwardly spliced together. There's a scenes with just like a whole lot of cuts because it seems like they didn't have a lot of footage to work with. You can tell, I think, watching it, that there was a lot of behind the scenes drama. I mean, Singer is such a tricky subject um, for various reasons, and you know, when when Me Too began, a lot of people were like, okay, well, he's gonna that's particularly when Kevin Spacey went down. Uh, but And it hasn't happened. And, and, you know, people have tried and there have been legal things against him. There was a documentary that was sort of ended up not really, a lot of stuff got cut from it because someone recanted. So I don't know, it's a tricky thing. And I, 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 I think it's bedeviling that like people still are hiring him for big things. Um, I wonder though, like, how long a narrative that actually is going to be because this movie seems to be a complete, or not a complete, but something of a flop. It could make money. Um, yeah, I, I guess so. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. From the heartland uh, of the Bay Area <laughs> report is that uh, a lot of people are really excited for this because they have they cut that trailer really well. And there's a lot of goodwill for Rami Malek uh, from Mr. Robot. And I basically have like I've been cautioning friends not to see it, like actively throwing cold water on it. But like I can't I can't convince everyone in the Bay Area not to see it. So I think it is going <laughs> to make money, at least on opening weekend. And then we'll see. What happens. There is a so bad it's good element to it. Uh, if that's your jam, uh, if you want to wait until it's streaming somewhere and watch it then i think that that would be perfectly reasonable uh but yeah i don't spend money to see it opening weekend yeah i really want to see it you guys haven't stopped me (laughs) (laughs) and then i can't wait to talk about it with you and just hear all of your favorite bad terrible moments (laughs) so we're gonna spend the the rest of the show talking about uh, more of the oscar races that have us fascinated and as always it seems to come back to best actress because i don't know that's where our hearts lie uh and richard you actually had an interesting i don't like a best actress moment or revelation at the middleburg film festival over the weekend um what did you see and what struck you about it the festival brought me down i did a q a um and they just wanted me to see what the festival is it's six years old it was started by the woman who uh founded bet uh, and now owns this resort uh, out like an hour outside of DC, and it's a beautiful setting. And then the festival gets good movies because they can afford them. Her life sounds amazing. Yeah, no, I mean it's a it's she's she's a fascinating story. So so you know they they wanted me to kind of just see what it was all about. It's just a weekend festival, kind of like Telluride. You know, it was me talking to a lot of rich people in line. It's for another day in the life of Richard. Yeah, Wilson. you know, you know. But the Q and A I did was with Peter Hedges, the writer and director of Ben Is Back, which um, I think we we spoke about uh, after Toronto, which is a movie about the opioid crisis in in particular one family dealing with it. Lucas Hedges, Peter's son, uh, plays the afflicted kid, uh, where uh, uh, Julia Roberts plays his mom. The movie went over a treat uh, at the festival, and Julia was not there. But people I spoke to were very high on her and the movie and its timeliness. And I think it's interesting 
to talk to people like the vote, like the people at Middleburg, because I don't think that they're Academy voters. Although I did talk to some producers and film, you know, people who are who could be, but they represent something of a similar demographic, uh, socioeconomically, age-wise. I, I think that their passion for that movie for me moves julia roberts more into the the kind of like theoretical five yeah well and and not to uh promote a a competitor here but scott feinberg does keep a very good list of Mm -hmm. um you know who's who's in the mix and he's got julia in his five front runners with glenn close olivia coleman lady gaga and yalitza aparicio i mean it's not a bad list there's a lot of other great performances but that's doesn't sound wrong. I wanted to ask you guys about the Glenn Close narrative because I know it's something that we've been talking about for a while, but I just, I'm curious where exactly this is popping from because her film wasn't exactly like in the heat of the festival circuit. So where where is this Glenn Close noise coming from? How did I miss it? Well, something that... um I took note of is we are just entering screener season where movies are getting sent out to people so they can watch at home and don't have to drag themselves to whatever. Uh, RBG, I think, was the really the first screener that went out. But the second one was The Wife, um, which, you know, is the Glenn Close movie. And so they're, they're, that it's in people's consciousness. The other thing is she's winning the big award, the Santa Barbara Film Festival, which I believe, you know, later this year or early next year. I think year. it happens like right um, after the Golden Globes, somewhere in that range. Right. Yeah, yeah. So like that's a thing that that's a sign that the industry is keeping that performance in mind. So for whatever reason, I mean, it premiered at Toronto over a year ago, uh, and then had a kind of quiet-ish August release. It it, it made some money, but not a ton. Um, but the power of Glenn has just like kept that movie, particularly that performance, um, lingering. And I think that Sony Pictures Classics is keen to that and has been handling it well. So fascinating. So like, is the is the wisdom that she's going to like definitely feels. So sure that she's going to be nominated, but like, how could she possibly win for a performance that so little, despite her being Glenn Close and being amazing and and having all these near misses in her career and stuff like that? Like, how can she win for a film that like, or a role that not many people in the world have seen, frankly? Lest we forget, Meryl Run for the Iron Lady. Yeah, fair Act- enough. Acting wins <laughs> come from weird places because it's so much more about the people and the narratives around them. And Glenn Close has this undeniable narrative where she's never won before. Um, it does seem tougher for her when you've got Lady Gaga, who's in this juggernaut that's a star is born. But the, as we've talked about, there's kind of like legitimate reasons to think maybe it won't happen for her because she's it's her first major performance. Um, so if, if, I, if I were Glenn Close's people, I would consider like it very much still within reach. Yeah, I mean, I think that you look at a movie like Still Alice, which uh, not a lot of people saw, but that Julianne Moore rode a wave of good notices for it to a win because it felt like it was her time. And I think that people are really into that narrative a lot of the, you know, and, and with Glenn Close, like this would be her seventh nomination, five of which were in the 80s. She got one in 2011, I think, for Albert mm-hmm. Nobbs. Um, so there's a kind of, there is, a, and she's also been doing a lot of theater recently. She came back and did Sunset Boulevard. She's in a show at the public where she plays Joan of Arc's mom right now. Like, Glenn Close is having a sort of resurgence, and yeah. the timing and, just thinks it's it's 8,000 people, you know, and they can, they can kind of basically decide in July, like, we're giving this to Glenn this year, yeah. you know? <laughs> It's, like they, it's they they basically can do that, uh, sort of. You know what I mean? Like when they see it, they're like, "Oh, f- finally! Like we'll have, this will be our opportunity to to make this happen for her. This movie's good enough. Like 
basically spread the word. I guess I'm just wondering, and and like I'm I might be speaking totally of ignorance here, but I guess I'm wondering if if this like new academy class that we're touting and this like academy that really wishes it had a popular um, film Oscar category this year, but maybe we'll try to skew more populist without that category. Uh, if that's still the Academy that would uh, award Glenn Close for a film that not that many people saw. Yeah. That's a good question. Right. I shouldn't say, I mean, that's fair. And I think, you know, there there's an old school click in the Academy and then there's a big new onrush of probably 2000 people who aren't part of that thing. And, and so there's a push and pull there. And I do think, you know, I I don't think it's like Olivia Coleman and Lady Gaga have no shot or or, or Julia Roberts or whomever. Right. But um but I think that we would be wrong to underestimate their ability to basically kind of say, like, we're we're doing this for Glenn. Yeah, that's a good point. You know? We we should talk about Olivia Coleman since I think they announced that they were officially planning to campaign her as lead like after we recorded last week. Um, we've talked about this and Richard, I think you've made it pretty clear that you think if she was in supporting, she would win for sure. And uh, Best Actress is riskier. Uh, now that we're stuck with it, uh, I mean, do you, do we think she has a chance in Best Actress? I I I, I kind of think she does. Depending on how, when the the voting kind of window is and and when the show is out, like it'll help that she's playing Queen Elizabeth on the Crown, you know, a huge Netflix show. She's taking over for Claire Foy in, in a beloved role, you know. So Coleman will be on people's minds, and I think that can help sometimes. I mean, I'm thinking about like Melissa McCarthy winning an Emmy for Mike and Molly, which she really won for Bridesmaids, and that was you know a TV thing that was a different sort of animal than the Oscars. But I don't know. I think that Coleman is possible i will say though that and going you know back to the middleburg film festival and also going back to telluride talking to people about the favorite a lot of those older rich white people were like it was weird i don't like it (laughs) it is weird and they didn't mean that in a good way yeah so i I think and they can all respect the fact that like they've seen olivia coleman in Broadchurch and they like her in that or they like her in whatever but like that's not the The night manager Right. And for us, it's like, well, it's less weird than the lobster. But for some other folks, they're like, still really weird. Yeah. And that can be alienating. And I, I, I think that while we do have a uh, an academy that nominates the lobster for a screenplay award or, you know, recognizes some smaller, quirkier stuff here and there, it, it's hard for that stuff to win. Yes. It's hard, you know, for, for the big awards, it, it tends to be the heart stuff, right? Or, or, or those kind of like, like, it's time moments. So we'll see. And We're- I think the it's, the it's it's time thing, if you look at like if, if we if we want a position that the trifecta being Olivia Coleman, Lady Gaga and Glenn Close, mm-hmm. Olivia Coleman doesn't get it because it, the movie's too weird and, and mm-hmm. she's not quite famous enough. Yeah. Lady Gaga doesn't get it because a lot of people are like, oh, her like pop singer. No, you know, right. Like like it's not the same thing as Cher winning in for Moonstruck. It's a different sort of movie. It's a different sort of pop star frankly so take those two away and then you have this like safe like no one is going to object to glenn close winning an oscar finally. yeah well the other thing that people will be able to say about lady gaga is like she's playing herself right. so at some level you know so if like let's see her play something else and then we can talk about whether there's an oscar down the line but like glenn close with seven nominations and no wins that that does become an easy an easy maneuver Wow, we just talked. We just talked ourselves not only into her being nominated, but winning. Oh God, that didn't take it's long. Not, it's not my intention. Though I would love a win for Glenn Close, who's, who who rules and is great and deserves it. So that that would be fine. Uh, one last question I want to ask in this category is Melissa McCarthy. I know that Richard, you talked about um, her film in the context. I think more largely of Richard E. Grant. But what do we think about Melissa McCarthy getting a Best Actress nomination at the Oscars? It seems no? pretty possible to me. 
Yeah. Like, there's so much affection for that movie that keeps building, it feels like, as it goes along. And like we were talking about last week, like, you know, Richard's a fan. Like, Richard E. Grant is getting this best for supporting actors. So they kind of, like, lift each other's coattails as they go along. Um, I mean, Best Actress feels crowded, as it often does. Uh, so, like, you know, there's a lot of, like, four, five, and six position people who you can see swapping around who aren't Lady Gaga or Glenn Close. But, I mean, I, I would think she's still pretty much in the running. Yeah, I think it's it's been heartening. That movie um, was released last week, but in a very small capacity, it'll, it'll it'll grow. But it's been heartening to see how much so, sort of not grassroots, but like small scale support that's kind of grown, uh, you know, as the weeks have gone on for that movie because it, it's really good. It's really small. It's a very specific story. I think that like I don't know what the ratio is but like whatever new york academy members there are you know the peggy siegel kind of people they'll really like that movie because it's so new yorky and it's kind of it honors a sort of throwback wit and uh, you know dorothy parker and fanny bryce and all this stuff it, it it has a sort of i could see an older new york dwelling academy voter being like oh this movie cares about what i care about you know and thus giving melissa mccarthy a nomination i don't think i think it's probably too small for best picture but um i think those two performances are I would be surprised if if either of them didn't get nominated. I actually had one last question in this category, too, because um, a lot of people in Gold Derby are keeping Yalizia uh, Aparizio uh, from Roma in their running. And that would be an uh, uncommon but not unheard of nomination for someone who's never acted before, who isn't really an actress. Like, they do kind of love it when women pop up from out of nowhere and, and give kind of striking performances. I'm thinking of really mostly children like Evangene Wallace and Beast of the Southern Wild is the first example that comes to mind. Um, it also seems challenging. We've talked about the challenges of Roma as a Netflix movie that's really needs to be seen on the big screen. is pretty arty. Um, um, I, I feel like a skeptic about this one just because there's so many big famous names with big narratives behind it. But are you guys believers in Yalitza? Um, I feel like she's kind of the that that would be an interesting sign of a broader support for that movie. Yeah. Um, you know, again, talking with people in the horse country of Virginia, they like the movie, but. It was not. I think they felt similar that you did, Katie, where they were like they they were they were, they didn't quite connect mm-hmm. to it. And so, if they're not connecting with it as a broader kind of work of art, are they then going to take this pretty, you know, unadorned performance from a, from a non professional actor and say yes, that should be? You know, I, I don't know. I'm much more skeptical about her chances than other people seem to be. I think that's all correct, but I also think. That a lot of people do really connect with the movie and love it. And then there's like, I do think there will be a dynamic of sort of like liberal, like we have to give that nomination, you know, which um, for whatever one may think of it, I think will push in the other direction too. I think there will be some obligatory like, yes, come on, let's 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 all rally and make this happen. Um, so I don't know if that gets her across the finish line or not, but I think that that would be a counterbalance to to some people just not really loving it as much as as I did when I saw it. It's going to be someone's senior thesis is like uh, Mexican filmmakers at the Oscars in the Trump era and like why, you know, like if, if Shape of Water did well and then Roma does well, it's like, well... Trump made Trump made his vote for all the Mexican directors more than we might have. Otherwise. Well, they they had a several year run up in the. Obama oh yeah, of course. No, yeah, yeah. Reach has been doing it, it. It's a flawed thesis, but it is interesting that this is the second year in a row we've had a major Mexican director, and it's like, well, you know, the more Trump rails against Mexico, the more people are like, "Fuck you, Trump! I'm going to vote for this Mexican movie that I love." Yes, and I think you know, I think that the more the caravan is this like outrageous, you know, to the extent that the caravan becomes this outrageous, like phony outrage thing that Trump uses whenever he sees enthusiasm dwindling, um, you know, 
Roma and Yelitsa specifically, I, I think, do represent a, a little bit of like a pushback against that that type. You know, this whole movie is about the humanity, insisting on the humanity of indigenous Latin Americans. And and <laughs> to the extent that those people are being dehumanized by the president of the United States to score cheap political points, you know, I, I, again, I think that there's a part of Hollywood that's kind of like, let, we have to make this happen. Like we can't, we can't overlook this because we just like really think that Melissa McCarthy's cool or whoever it is that's, that's also on the bubble. But I don't know. I mean, I, I don't want to speak for all of you, but it seems like we have kind of passed through the membrane of the Netflix thing. Like it feels like we all are now just assuming that that movie is going to be like in the best picture race. You know, I think Mudbound I obviously greased the wheels for it and Mudbound got an acting nomination. So yeah. like it, it's, it's not unheard of. So I, I feel like that sort of narrative in a way has already been settled. Well, but also like Mudbound is Dee Reese who's super cool, but like Quaron is, you know, like they love has an, an enormous history at the Oscars, right? I mean, this is a this is a very very proven entity. Um and so I don't think you can look away from it just because it's Netflix and and I you know, and at some level I think it represents the, what's the ultimately good side of Netflix for creators in the film world at least which is you know they plunked down a lot of money to make a very kind of you know personal artistic film that with not huge commercial prospects without them stepping in to do it so I I think that there will be for every person who's like oh my god Netflix is eating my lunch I feel like there's going to be other people who are like, great, like sign me up. Yeah, they also just like had big parties at festivals and like did a lot of screenings (laughs) and are all, you know, the movie for always felt like it never felt like a a movie you'd watch on your computer. You know what I mean? Like in your sort of mind. So I think that that that, that it was effective. Look, they are flooding the zone with with, you know, stuff with people and films and events and and, you know, promotion like they're not they're they're very aggressively moving in this space. So I, I don't think that I think that, you know, to some extent, it's 100 percent true that there are people who are who are scared of them or wary of them. But I also think that, you know, they're certainly not letting that stop them from from advancing their goals. And I feel like, you know, I, I don't think you can dismiss Roma on any level, you know, as a film that that is one of the best films of the year. Um, unless you just say like, I don't know, it's just long and boring and in a foreign language and, and black and white, but that's a pretty like dumbass point of view. Have, <laughs> members don't like to be in that position. Someone will come up with it, but, uh, it doesn't have to be us. You know, you mentioned sort of the strategy that Netflix is, is working on and how much of this do we lay at the doorstep of, um, is it Lisa Tabak? Tabak? I don't even know how to pronounce Tabak, her Tabak, I always Tabak. Thought. Okay. Um, you know, who, what, had a long run at the... The Weinstein Company and was recently hired by Netflix as their strategist. And it's like, I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> All right, then. Okay, Netflix. Yeah, no, they're, they're not playing around. <laughs> you know. They, they are reassembling the the super friends of, of award strategy over there. I mean, you know, they got Cynthia Schwartz. I think, you know, they're, they have a huge operation. A number of people who used to work for Harvey, you know, and, and like, sadly, Harvey kind of invented and, and this whole thing. So they have several, you know, kind of inevitably they have several people who who worked for him. Yeah, I mean, they're taking it very seriously and they're investing in it. There's no question about it. It's sort of like, uh, I, I think we've talked about this before. Like, I, I've heard that Netflix is hiring up, like, all the publicists in the world. I know this to be true. And they're hiring up all the... Um, 
I've heard from sound people that they're hiring all the sound people. And it's just sort of like, it's almost like, we've talked about this before, I know, but it's almost like Netflix is hiring everyone. So it's not just that they have the best people, but no one has anyone left to do work for them. You know what I mean? It's just Hollywood as a zero sum game. It's okay. Here comes, here comes Disney Go to do its best. It's it's sort of a tangent, but like I've, it's been interesting watching this week and last a little bit that like how how big of a push a quiet place is doing. Speaking of awards marketing, I mean they they yeah. sent an email out. They have like fifteen or twenty screenings scheduled in L.A. and New York and London, yeah, uh, in the next few weeks. Um, so it's just fun to watch all that stuff kind of churn into being and be like, oh, the, the, this this movie is throwing it in the mix. I remember yeah. like a couple years ago getting a screener for Fast and Furious, and it was like one of the, I think it was seven or something, and it like had like for your consideration and like all these categories. It was like, all right, cool, like we're, we're, they're going to go for it, you know? Yeah, uh, they're running all the Quiet Place actors and supporting. By the yeah, way. no, yeah, well, I was going to say while we're still on, on Best Actress, like the fact that they're doing all the Quiet Place actors and supporting seems explicitly because Emily Blunt's going to run for lead in Mary Poppins, like and which. Which seems like she has a pretty good shot. Not many people have seen it yet, but on paper, it seems perfect. For the Globes, at least, right? Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Like, that. Julie Andrews won an Oscar for it, and people love Emily Blunt. It seems entirely possible to me. So we were going to talk about Best Actor, but obviously Best Actress has our hearts too much. So we'll get into that next week. Uh, Bradley Cooper, your time will come next week. In the meantime, uh, that does it for this week's Little Gold Men. Thanks for listening. Uh, thanks for continuing to find us on Apple Podcasts, leaving us ratings and reviews, helping us find new listeners in this exciting season. Uh, you can find us all on Twitter at Little Gold Men and on our own. I'm at Katie Rich. Richard? Rylaws. And Joanna? Joe wrote this. And Mike? Mike is Mike underscore Hogan. Uh, I'm speaking for him on his behalf. I have his permission. This episode was edited and produced by Danielle Roth, and this week's award for the best alternative to the Rotten Tomatoes tomato meter goes to Mike Hogan. So should they bring a date or not? <laughs>